Well, it's my privilege to close out this series called Waiting for Christmas, because next Sunday we won't have to wait anymore, like we said. It'll be here. Woo! And um, so uh, what I wanted to start with was a quick story, and then I'll tell you what we're going to talk about today. And the story brings me back to when I was in first or second grade. I can't remember, because when you're in first or second grade, you can't really remember much, right? And so anyways, first or second grade, I know that I was in a first or second grade because I was in a one-room school Grades one through eight were all in one room, and so I remember that vividly. But uh, one day they decided to take the whole school, <laughs> all 20 of us, out to a field trip in, uh, near downtown Tulsa. We got to tour a museum. And maybe some of you can relate to this. Have you ever gone to a museum, or maybe you've seen an attraction, or maybe you went somewhere, and you spent 10 seconds saying, oh, that's nice, and then you were done? Well, first or second grade Matthew went to this museum that was designed for adults, and he looked around, and he said, that's nice, and he was done, but then he still had three hours to hang out while the rest of the school did their little tour. Um, And I can't imagine, if I would go back to that same museum, what sorts of valuable pieces of art or, you know, all the, the wealth just in that one museum, all the culture, all that stuff, and yet for a first or second grader, I didn't recognize any of it. All the value was lost on me. Now, I debated whether or not to tell this little detail to you, but I'll, I trust that you won't let this out. The only thing I really remember from that field trip was there were some paintings in this museum, you know, paintings of all kinds, but there were a few paintings in particular that were paintings of women. And sometimes when these artists draw women, they don't always have all their clothes on. And so first, second grade Matthew saw those paintings, and, and I was just like looking around, I'm like, someone's going to get in trouble. That's the only thing I remember. And those, quite honestly, those paintings, which I remember, not vividly, that shock moment that I felt, those were probably the least valuable things in that museum. But, but maybe all of us have, have done that before, where we went to this place, we saw this attraction, and it took us 10 seconds to say, oh, that's nice, and we didn't even recognize the value in front of us. And I think that all of us Fear that for Christmas, too. We don't want Christmas to be one of those things that just we go through and we take 10 seconds to say, oh, that's nice, and then we, we move on in our lives. And yet it, it's, it still happens anyway. There's a genuine, authentic desire, and I believe all of us, that wants to see the value in Christmas. But at the same time, I think that a lot of us grew up, and maybe in a church culture, maybe this is the church's fault, and we grew up with this guilt over Christmas, that, oh, I should be doing something more, oh, I should be finding this inner peace, oh, I should be doing this, oh, I should be doing that, and we find this guilt because we, we think, we feel like we're not doing Christmas right. <laughs> and so I want to share an idea with you, this is what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to share an idea with you to, to rethink the way we approach Christmas, and as, we, as, we, as we're here today, it's just seven days away. First of all, here's an idea to share with you. Christmas was never intended to be something that we need to be ready for. Just look through the scriptures. Look, just take away everything in the 21st century. Go back to the day that God wrote the Bible. Christmas was never intended to be something that we had to be ready for. You go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That's when God first gave the promise of Christmas that a, a Savior would be sent. Adam and Eve were not ready. They didn't do what was needed. In fact, it was what they did that required Christmas to be a thing. You look throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament, and every time God repeated this promise, it's not because people were ready to hear it, 
But rather, here's the other part of it. Here's the thing. Christmas was intended to be something we need. It wasn't intended to be something we need to be ready for. It was simply intended to be something that we need. Can we just leave it at that for a moment? And to say, it's not on me. The guilt isn't on me. I don't need to do anything. I just need to pause and remember that Christmas was something intended for me to need. And we're going to see a clear picture of this from the prophet Micah today. He lived two, I'm sorry, 700, about 725 years before Christmas ever happened. And the people he was surrounded with were definitely not doing things to be ready for Christmas. In fact, there was nothing they could do. There was absolutely nothing they could do to better their circumstances or better their life in any way. And we're going to see that we have a lot in common with them. But Micah's message to them was that you don't need to be ready for Christmas. Christmas was just something that you need. It's just something that you need. We need God with us. So in just a second, we're going to open up to to Micah chapter 5. Before we do that, I'm going to go ahead and let you have the first fill-in if you like to take notes. Christmas means everything when there's nothing you can do. And we're going to see that actually in a lot of different places in life, there's nothing we can do. We're, We're more... We're more helpless, we're more hopeless, and we're definitely more in need of God than we might actually imagine. But thankfully, there are these moments when we realize just how much we can do nothing. There's really nothing we can do. So we're going to open up to Micah chapter 5. He's going to be showing these people, hey, for Christmas, there's nothing you need to be ready for. Christmas is just something you need. And he's going to show them why that's true, and there's going to be a lot that applies to us too. So I'm going to read the first verse here. It's not going to make a lot of sense at first because you have no context for it. But I'm going to read the first verse for you, and then I'm going to fill in why he said it and what this all means. So this is Micah chapter 5, verse 1. He said, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. So what happened in Micah's day, again, about 725 B.C., is when the Assyrians were really starting to crush and dominate the entire known world, including Israel and Judah. And Ben talked about this last week. I think it was last week, right? Israel and Judah and how that was all done. So if you missed last week, you need to watch it. It was a great message. So, so the Assyrians are starting to come in, and, and, and Micah says, we need to be ready. We need to marshal our troops because the Assyrians are going to come to our doorstep really soon. No one could stop the Assyrians. They were plowing over the entire ancient world. And Micah says they're coming to us too. So we need to marshal our troops, city of troops. And that's kind of a a sarcastic way of of addressing Jerusalem because Jerusalem was not a city of troops. It was a city of people that are just like you today, people sitting in this room. You're not troops, but when there's no one else and nothing else to, to depend on, you become what you need to be, right? And so he says, you're a city of troops now, so marshal up for a siege is laid against us. And, and uh, I know last week, you talked about a siege last week too, right? There's a lot of overlap. And so a siege is when, you know, the army's on the outside, you're on the inside, um, behind the walls, no one gets out, no one comes in. We talked about that last week. So get this, the people are going to be helpless because they have to be their own troops. No one's coming in to save them, but they're also hopeless because they can't change the situation. The army is coming, and all they can do is react. All they can do is stay behind the walls. They are hopeless. All they can do is react to what's happening against them. 
So start to put yourself in their mindset. Micah is telling them, you're helpless, you're hopeless. And that's not the worst of it. He finishes verse 1 with this phrase. He says, Then they, the Assyrians, will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And if you're wondering, well, what's, what's that supposed to mean? Picture this. Picture an invading army coming to the United States. They go into the Oval Office and slap our president with a white glove. I don't know what white glove. Maybe it's a black glove. They slap him in the face. They slap him, slap him against the cheek. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. This would be the ultimate form of humiliation for any country, any nation to endure. If their leader is approached by someone else and struck against his cheek with a, with a rod, with the very thing a ruler is supposed to lead with, this would have been utter humiliation. All because they were helpless and hopeless. Now, if you've been paying attention, this is three H's that we see in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 1. People were helpless, people were hopeless, and people were humiliated. And that was too much of a coincidence for me, so I decided to put it into fill in number two on your sheets. These are time, there are times when even we today realize how helpless, how hopeless, and how humiliated we really are. We're going to have a lot in common with these people. When's the last time you felt hopeless? Hopeless in the sense that there's this thing coming at you and all you can do is kind of hide behind your little wall. You can't dictate the situation. You can't dictate the, the circumstances. All you can do is kind of sit there and just wait because there's nothing you can do. When's the last time you felt hopeless? When's the last time you were helpless? Now, this is ironic because in today's world where we're so connected through the internet and through social media, we're more connected than ever, but we're also more lonely than ever. When's the last time you felt like you were all alone, helpless, you had to, to fight your own battles, no one was on your side, or you had to go it alone? Last time you felt like there was nothing you could do about it. When's the last time you felt humiliated, whether it's something you did and people saw, <laughs> something you posted and people reacted to, or simply something inside that humiliates you as you even consider Christmas, God with us? And you realize that there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is just wait, <laughs> hope for it to go away. Well, what I want to assure you of is even when there's times in life when there's nothing we can do, that's exactly when God steps in and he says, perfect, you're right where you, want, where you need to be. Because when you realize that you can do nothing, Christmas is going to mean everything. We're going to see that in Micah as we, as we go on in, in verses 2 through 4. He's going to address the hopelessness, the helplessness, the humiliation, and he's going to show how Christmas is an answer to all of it. So if you've ever felt like there's nothing you can do, these words are for you. Verse 2. So you remember, it's a leader struck on the cheek with a rod. Then he, verse 2, he says, I need to give him some hope. He says, but you... Bethlehem Ephrathah. And he said Bethlehem Ephrathah because there were a couple of different Bethlehems back then, and so he gets really specific. Bethlehem Ephrathah, the Bethlehem over there. I'm talking to you. Hey, look at me. I'm talking to you. Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, and just as you look at the geography around there, if you were to count all the towns and all the cities in Judah at that time, you wouldn't even count Bethlehem because it was so small and so insignificant. 
You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you think you're small, you think you're insignificant, but out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origin, if you want to trace back where he's from, where he came from, all you can say is that his origin is from of old, from ancient times. If you go back to everlasting, that's where you're going to find him. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over these people. So hey, guess what? If you're hopeless, if you feel like there's only, only things against you, Christmas is for you. Because Christmas is where God sends a ruler from of old who has power over everything. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is interesting because when you get to the, to the, the, the days where Jesus was born, even the Jews at that time who knew Micah chapter 5 said, they were asked, well, where's the Messiah, the Savior, supposed to come from? And they pinpointed Bethlehem. That's where he will come from. And Micah gave such a specific view of this because he knew that when you feel hopeless and when you feel like there's nothing you can do, Christmas will mean everything. And so he gave them that specific promise. And the same is true of you and me. When there's nothing we can do, when we feel utterly hopeless, Christmas is God's answer to it. Because you know what? The help and the hope he provides here is one unlike anything else. So this would have been a hope for the people in Micah's day. As they saw the Assyrians coming in, there is one who is coming. And it's a hope for us today to see the one who has come. Verse 3, therefore, yeah, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. We're going to lose everything. We're going to be abandoned. We're going to be taken into exile, and it's not going to be pretty. But when the, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And so you, you see this, even in the Old Testament, there's little hints that God is keeping this promise where he, he, the, the exiles from Israel go away, but then God lets them come back. They come back to, to rebuild Jerusalem after it's been destroyed. And you see little hints of it. But then, even then, you don't see the ultimate fulfillment of this until the time came for the Savior to be born. And when Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. You see, in, in, the, in the aftermath of Christmas, in, especially in the New Testament, you see the apostles telling people, hey, you used to be so divided. <laughs> you used to, be used to be spread out so much between Jew and Greek and male and female and slave and free. There, there are all these different categories for you. And, and the apostles said, that's, that's gone. That's gone. You're now made one. You're, you're one. You're brought back together through the power of the Messiah. So, so here's the thing. If you're feeling helpless and there's nothing you can do, if you feel all alone and stranded, that's what Christmas was for. Through the blood of the one born at Christmas, God brought us all together. And that's one big reason why we at Bethlehem make such a big deal about not just sitting in rows like we are right now, but getting together in circles to celebrate the unity and the fellowship that we have through Christ. That's one of the blessings of Christmas. And the last one here, verse 4, is one of the most beautiful uh, pictures of what he would do. So he, this child to be born, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So no longer will we have this puppet of a governor, a puppet of a king in Jerusalem who just tells whatever the Assyrians tell him to do. We will have a ruler who stands in the strength of the Lord. 
in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Forget the humiliation that we have right now. One day we will have a king that no one can touch. One day a king to whom every knee will bow. Everywhere. And they will live securely. His people will live securely because then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. You see, there's not going to be this kingdom over here that can come in and invade us anymore because one day this ruler will have dominion over all things. A kingdom that's not of this world. A kingdom where you have no need to feel humiliated because shame and guilt will have no power over you anymore. So, when there's nothing you can do about the humiliation you feel and the humiliation you, you face, God says this is perfect. Because when there's nothing you can do, Christmas means everything. What comes for you, who comes for you, is a ruler with majesty, with power and greatness, so much so that he can take away your sin and your guilt and your shame and your embarrassment. <laughs> and he can even take away your death. So, if there's nothing you can do, you feel helpless, you feel hopeless, you feel humiliated, Christmas is God's answer for that. Now, here's the result. Now, in verse 5, if you look at a different Bible translation, um, there's different ways to take verse 5. Basically, the big way is people move around the the period, and I'm going to show you that um, here. So, verse 5 says this, and he will be our peace. Now, some translations, and they're not bad, they put a period right after peace. He will be our peace. And you just, you just kind of stop for a moment and think about that. And you think, that's wonderful. That's a great inner peace that he brings us, this fuzziness or whatever it might be. And I'm not bashing it. It's just that there, there's another way to take this. You see, Hebrew didn't have periods in it. Another way to take this is to take this as one sentence like this translation does. You see, it's not just that he will be our peace when we're happy. And it's not just he's our peace when we really find him or dig deep, it's, it's not just he's our peace when things are going well. Get this. He will be our peace when the Assyrians, this is Micah telling the people, when the Assyrians invade our land and they march through our fortresses. When the enemy comes in and our best efforts go by the, by the wayside, then even then we will find peace. When we've built our strongest fortresses, our best battlements, and there's nothing we can do more, and we still fail, even then we will have peace. That's a very specific setting and a very specific context for their peace. And so my question for you is simply this. What is it that you can't do right now? What's the area of life where you just step back and you say, well, there's just nothing I can do, nothing I can do? Maybe for some of us, it's a financial thing where decisions of the past and circumstances of the present have led us to a place where we just have to say, whoa, what are we going to do? There's nothing we can do. Maybe it's a relational thing. If, if you're a parent and, and maybe you look at your children and you see their potential, you see all the things they could do, and yet their choices are taking them down a different path. And you've tried all you can. You've shouted, you've yelled, you've coached, you've preached at them, whatever, and you finally look back and you say, there's just nothing I can do. By the way, kids, they do that because they love you. Maybe, maybe it's something different. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe you've done everything you can do, and all you can do at this point is just manage whatever it is, and there's just nothing you can do. I want to leave you with this thought today. Fill in number three. 
Christmas is where God demonstrates what he always wanted to do. From day one of creation, when he set this massive universe into existence, he always wanted to show you how much he loved you. From the day you were born and your sinful nature entered this world, God always wanted to show you what he could do. And when the time was right, when everything was just perfect, when the regional and and cultural and political climate was just the way it needed to be, God did what he always wanted to do. He sent his son to give hope, to give help, to give us the glory of God that we could not find on our own. So if you're in a place in life right now where you're saying, there's just nothing I can do, I want you to know you're in the right place. You're ready for Christmas. You're ready to see what God has been wanting to do all along because he alone is the one who gives us life. One more week waiting for Christmas. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, um, in different ways, at different times, all of us face situations in life where we just feel or we come to the conclusion that there's nothing we can do. And that uh, realization can bring lots of horror and, and despair, and a lot of times it puts us on our knees to you, and that's a good place for us to be. So my prayer is that as each of us wrestle in different ways with things going on in life, that, that you above all else, would be able to center our hearts on real hope in knowing who you are, in the real help that comes from your church and from the glory that you will one day bestow on all of us for the sake of your Son who lived and died in our place. So as we continue waiting for Christmas, be with us and and bless us as we prepare to celebrate your answer to all of our waiting. I pray all these things in Jesus' name as we also join in the prayer he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.